So that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And it reads this way. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read that one more time. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Title of my sermon uh, this morning is Looking Forward. Looking forward to that day. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer and we're going to ask his help to understand uh, this passage of scripture. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. God, I thank you uh, that your word never comes back to you void. So I pray, God, that as we encounter you today, Lord, in your word, Lord, that we would be brought to faith, that we would be brought to repentance. I pray, God, that you would help us to see how uh, this word written by First Peter applies to us today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to me, speak through me. Lord, that you would uh, help me to be clear in communicating your word. And I pray, Father, that your people would be edified that they would be built up in their most precious faith, that your name might be glorified with how we live our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in a world filled with mass shootings, greed, poverty, abuse, injustice, scandals, death, Two questions may come to mind. Where is hope to be found? Next question, is hope even possible in a world such as this? In an article written by John Piper some years ago, he talked about the different ways that we use the word hope. According to that article, he says hope is used in three different ways. So number one, he says, hope is the desire for something good in the future. So, for example, my son Ashton, he might say, I hope dad can take me to GameStop so that he can buy me a new video game, right? Second way, he says, hope is the good thing in the future we are desiring. So one might say our hope is that we make it to the graduation on time. Third way, he says, hope is the basis or reason for thinking that our desire may indeed be fulfilled. So if you're the owner of the, the Baltimore Ravens, the general manager, coach, you might say Lamar Jackson starting at quarterback is our only hope of winning a Super Bowl, right? I do believe that. <laughs> In our modern use of the English language, hope conveys a certain level of uncertainty. My son doesn't know if I'll take him to GameStop. We don't know if we're going to make it to the graduation on time. The Ravens don't know if Lamar Jackson may get injured or if he'll decide to play for another team next year. You see, in the Bible, sometimes hope is used in these ways. However, the most important element that we see of hope in the scriptures is not an expectation of something that might or might not happen. Biblical hope is a certainty. It's assurance. As one theologian says, he says that biblical hope is the idea of assurance that what is hoped for will certainly come to pass. Another theologian says 
he defines hope in this way. He says the certain anticipation of certainties. You see, in a broken and fallen world where hopes wither away, like the flowers on my dining table, we need a hope that is certain. We need a hope that will be able to withstand the test of uh, the, uh, the trials of fire. We need a hope that will withstand the storms of this life. Well, where is that hope to be found? Well, the main point I want to communicate to you this morning, if you're taking notes, is that God has given us this type of hope. He's given us an unwavering hope in the person of Jesus Christ. Now get this, this hope will be fully revealed to us at Christ's second coming. So therefore, at all times, we must keep our eyes looking forward to that day. You see, when we fix our eyes on that glorious day, or as Peter says in verse 13, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we set our hope on that day, brothers and sisters, it governs how we live today in the midst of our trials. It governs how we live in this broken and fallen world. So this morning we'll be in the book of 1 Peter. And as we see at the In the introduction, Peter is the author of this letter. It states in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of the 12 apostles chosen by Christ. The apostles were commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. Now, just like the other 12 apostles, Peter Peter was one who walked with Christ during during his uh, earthly ministry. He was taught by Christ. And after Christ's death, his resurrection, Peter was an eyewitness to the resurrection. In fact, when Jesus appeared to Peter following his resurrection, there's this wonderful scene in the Gospel of John. And Jesus goes to Peter, the same Peter that denied him three times. He finds Peter. He goes to him. And he says, if you love me, tend my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. Tells him again, if you love me, feed my sheep. And this is exactly what we see Peter doing here as he's writing this letter, right? When Jesus gives Peter the charge to tend his lambs to feed his sheep, what Jesus is saying is that, look, Peter, I need you to care for my people. I need you to care for Christians. I need you to care for the church. And that's what, that, that, that is what we see Peter doing here. In verse 1, we're also introduced to the recipients of this letter. You see, Peter is writing to Christians scattered in different regions of Asia Minor, which we now know today as uh, the country of Turkey. It says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, the dispersion just means scattering, so these Christians were scattered in these different regions, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, just what was Peter's audience going through? What problems were they facing that would cause Peter to write this letter to them? Well, if you've read 1 Peter before, right, we know that these Christians suffer from various trials. That's chapter 1, verse 6. They endure grief from suffering unjustly, chapter 2, verse 19. They were accused and slandered, chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 4. They suffered fiery trials, chapter 4, verse 12. They shared in the sufferings of the Messiah, chapter 4, verse 13. They were ridiculed for the name of Christ, chapter 4, verse 14, and they suffered according to God's will, chapter 4, verse 19. Now, one might be left to wonder, why did these Christians suffer so much? One can be under the assumption that when one puts their faith 
in Jesus Christ, that life is just easy. Life should be easy after we put our faith in Jesus. I thought that Christianity was supposed to be filled with joy and prosperity. I thought that the people of God lived victorious lives, free from suffering. Well, you see, Peter refers to these Christians in verse 1 as elect exiles. He goes on in verse 2 to say, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. You see, the reason why these Christians, the reason why these Christians were suffering, brothers and sisters, was because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Their suffering was directly related to the relationship that they had with Christ. You see, they were in covenant with God through the death of Christ and the work of the Spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, a covenant was established through the shedding of blood. God confirmed his covenant with the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 24. In fact, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, it says, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see, Peter is reminding these Christians that their faith in Jesus was directly related to the suffering they experienced. These Christians were foreigners or exiles in regards to their earthly citizenship. They were living in a world that was hostile to Christianity, a world that didn't share the same worldview, a world that didn't share the same faith, a world that didn't share the same, uh, that didn't share the same values. And this was cause for their various trials that they experienced. You see, these Christians were alienated for their faith. They were rejected. But Peter reminds them that God's people have always been foreigners. God's people have always been pilgrims or exiles desiring a better country. The true citizenship of God's people has always been in heaven and not on this earth. Brothers and sisters, I want you to see how God's word spoken through Peter is very much relevant for us today. You see, as God's chosen people, we still live in the same world that was hostile to these Christians in Asia Minor. We still live in a world where we are reviled, mocked, alienated, accused, slandered. A world where we will suffer for the name of Christ. And I recognize that in certain places, in certain places today, throughout the world, especially in America, we may not experience the social alienation for the name of Christ to the extent experienced by these first century Christians in Asia Minor, or to the extent of Christians living, let's say, in a third world country or a Muslim country. But we shouldn't be too comfortable, because I don't know if you notice, but things seem to be changing by the day. We could be in jeopardy of losing these freedoms that we possess, these religious freedoms that we possess today. But the point I'm trying to get across is that regardless of where we live, Christians everywhere need to be reminded of the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we might persevere in our trials. It is for this reason why Peter is writing this letter. Peter wants God's people to be hopeful. Now, let me just say this. I want to address the the non-Christians in the room. First, I'm so happy that you're here. 
But let me just be clear. If you're not a Christian, that means you don't have this hope that Peter is referring to. You have what we would call a dead hope, which literally, which means really that that's no hope at all. But the invitation remains for you today to receive this hope. And you receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, put your faith in Christ, and receive this living hope. Don't harden your heart. Don't reject him, but simply receive what Christ has done for you. You see, Peter wants Christians to be strengthened in their faith, and I love how Peter does it. You see, before we get to this command in verse 13, Peter first highlights the greatness of the salvation that God has accomplished for us. And I want to take a moment just to look at these verses, verses 3 through 12, to remind us of this great salvation that we have received, and I want to praise God for it. So in verses 3 through 12, we see the work of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So verses 3 through 5, Peter says in verse 3, and I think this is the key verse in the whole letter. Listen to what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everybody say born again. The reason why anyone in this room is a Christian today is because of the great mercies of God. We didn't contribute in any way. We don't get to take the credit for being born again. Let's look at it another way. No one in here played a role in your physical birth. What I mean is you didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose when you would be born. You didn't choose how you would be born. Now, and if this is true of our physical birth, and let's just follow the logic, how much more is it true of our spiritual birth? To be born again literally means to be born from above. It means to be recreated and given a new life. Remember, we all inherited a sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God. All those that were born after, after them, including us, right? We inherited this sinful nature, a nature that hated God, hated the things of God, didn't want anything to do with God whatsoever, a nature that loved sin. But you see, brothers and sisters, because of God's great mercies, we have been given a new spiritual life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the scriptures say for all those who are in Christ is a new creation. Now we love God. We hate sin. Just think about your own conversion for a second. How did you go from being a sinner to a saint? How did you go from not loving God, from not loving God's people, the things of God, for having no desire for holiness whatsoever, to now you sitting up in here in church on a Sunday, singing the songs of Zion, praising God, fighting against sin, loving holiness, loving, uh, holiness, pursuing holiness, how, like, what happened? It was because of God's great mercy that you have been made into this new person with new desires. Oh, church, let us always be praising God for his mercies. You see, as a result of this new life, 
we have been given, Peter says, a living hope and an inheritance. According to verse 4, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and is being kept in heaven. We can imagine that the trials experienced by these Christians in Asia Minor left them feeling hopeless, helpless, without strength. They probably were struggling with doubt. The persecution was so great at this time, some of them probably was despairing of life itself. This morning, I wonder who among us is feeling this way. What trial or suffering has come your way because of your faith in Jesus? How are you responding to that trial? Let's put ourselves in the mind of these these first century Christians. You're in the midst of this great persecution. You're being alienated, looked at and treated as an outcast by society, maybe rejected by your family, your friends, your co-workers. But then you get your hands on this letter by Peter. Think about how encouraging it must have felt to be reminded of the living hope and the inheritance that you have during this time. Brothers and sisters, our hope is described as a living hope because it is an eternal one. It won't rot away. It won't be destroyed. It can't be stolen. Look at it. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading all conveyed that our hope is a certain thing. In a world full of uncertainties, we have something that is certain. We have assurance. Peter goes on to further encourage his audience by reminding them that God's power is so great that it is able to guard their weak faith during these hopeless times that they were in. Look at verse 5. It states, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, as I was reading this verse, I'm thinking to myself, this may be one of the most inspiring verses in all of Scripture. And this is what I mean by that in verse 5. This Christian life, it comes with many challenges. Our faith is always challenged by suffering. However, the very same faith that God gives us as a gift is the very same faith that he guards, that he uh, preserves, that he protects until that great and final day when Christ comes back. Look, let's be honest. If it had not been for the power of God, guarding our faith in times of trouble, there would be no Christians left in this world. None. You see, it's one thing to know that we have an inheritance kept in heaven. The Bible also says that those who persevere to the end will receive this inheritance. But the question remains is, how do you know that your faith will make it to the end? How can you be sure that your faith will make it to the end? Remember, this, this is a broken and fallen world. We live in an ungodly, uh, ungodly culture. It's tough being a Christian. How do you know that the storms of life won't overtake your faith? Brothers and sisters, it is because we possess a genuine faith that is protected by God's power. Church, I want you to take heart this morning. Your faith is being guarded by your heavenly Father. May this comfort you in times of distress. May it comfort you when you feel like giving up. He's faithful even when we're not. 
Peter goes on in these next couple verses to talk about the second person of the Trinity. He talks about the Son, Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 9, Peter focuses on the future coming of Christ. And as a result of this future coming, Peter says that Christians can have joy today, even while we suffer, even, even while we, we find ourselves in trials and tribulations. Peter says that we can have joy in the midst of our suffering. If you notice, Peter doesn't deny the reality of our trials. Christians are not Stoics. We don't walk around pretending that, you know, we don't go through anything and that everything is fine. You see, although our future is secure and, and, and we have this living hope, he knows that we will encounter various trials. But you see, the trials that we encounter in this life have a purpose. God uses these trials to prove the genuineness of our faith. How do you know that your faith, the faith that you possess, how do you know that it is a genuine faith? A genuine faith will prove itself faithful to God no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, by being obedient to God, by submitting to God's will, no matter the situation. No matter how great the trials we suffer, genuine faith in God will show itself to be steadfast and immovable. Now, this is not to say that the person with genuine faith won't struggle with doubt. This is not to say that the person with genuine faith won't even be found unfaithful at times. But what I am saying is that true, genuine faith, right, genuine faith will persevere to the end. The one who perseveres in faith in this life will be glorified in the next life when Christ returns. Look at verses 6 through 9. It reads this way, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want us to try to wrap our mind around this great truth. Church, there is coming a day where we will no longer need faith. There is coming a day when we will see Jesus for who he is with our physical eyes. Look, no one in here has ever seen Christ. These Christians in Asia Minor that Peter is writing to, they didn't see Christ. Now, although they never saw him, Peter says that they loved him and were filled with inexpressible joy even as they were suffering. Like, how, how can that be? How can Peter say that we love Christ, that he's filled us with inexpressible joy, and we haven't even seen him? Like, how is that possible? Well, brothers and sisters, it is because of our spiritual relationship with Jesus and what the Word of God says about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Let me remind you, we're talking about the Son of God, the one who loved you and gave himself for you when he died on the cross. We're talking about the one who sticks closer than a brother, 
He's the one who will never leave nor forsake. He was the one who was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. I can go on and on and on. Have you experienced this Jesus? Look, there's nothing of more value than Christ. There's no one greater than him. Has he filled you with joy even though he has called you to suffer a little while? Do you love him? You see, when Peter says we must suffer a little while, he's referring to our earthly life until the moment Jesus comes back for us. I don't know about you, but that can be kind of like depressing. We don't know when when Christ is coming back. Like we don't. We don't know today. It could be years from now. It could be tomorrow. We don't know. But Peter says that we must suffer a little while. But this way, I want you to be encouraged. As Christians, we are people of hope. Right? We're not like others who don't have hope. Remember, Peter says we have a living hope. This is something that can't be taken away from us, brothers and sisters. You see, the reason why our hope is secure is because it is grounded in Christ. I'm reminded of the old hymn that we sing and we sung it this morning. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Brothers and sisters, today we can be full of love and joy in our trials because of our future hope of seeing Christ. Verses 10 through 12, Peter, he continues to encourage his readers by explaining to them the great privilege they have of living in the days where God's plan of redemption is being fulfilled. You see, this salvation was prophesied in the past by the prophets. Look at verses 10 and 11. It reads this way, concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see, the prophets of old, they did not live in the days of fulfillment. They searched and inquired carefully about that day. They longed to see that day. Their prophecies foretold of the future sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that will follow, but they didn't know when these things would take place. They didn't know. Look at verse 12. It says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look. You see, according to verse 12, the Old Testament prophets were serving not themselves, but future generations. And those future generations would include these Christians in Asia Minor, as well as us today. The prophets of old didn't fully grasp their predictions, their prophecies. They didn't see the connection between suffering and glory. Look, you see, Jesus' own disciples failed to see this connection between suffering and glory. The peoples in Jesus' day thought that the Messiah would come on the scene and establish God's kingdom by defeating all of Israel's enemies. 
They didn't understand the need for the Messiah to die on the cross for their sins. They failed to comprehend the cross before the crown. They didn't comprehend the humiliation before the glorification. I think the Christians in Asia Minor were also struggling to see this connection between suffering and glory. And I'm concerned that in today's Christianity, we fail to see this connection as well between suffering and glory. Look, church, if we're going to reign with Christ, we must suffer with him. There's no way around it. Suffering is a part of God's plan of redemption, just as much as glorification is. Peter knew this, and his aim for these Christians was to see that the gospel preached to them, which they believed, was the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, a plan that was hidden in the Old Testament. You see, the Spirit of Christ may mention in verse 11, that refers to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament prophets as they wrote about the Messiah to come. The prophets of old, they weren't out there just like freestyling and making up these predictions. No, absolutely not. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Peter even says in his second letter that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, the same spirit that inspired the Old Testament prophets is the same spirit that speaks to those, that speaks through those who proclaim the gospel message even today. For Peter, he saw that both the Old Testament and the New Testament, he saw that both of those, both of these scripts as one message. Both Old and New Testament is one message. For they both speak about Christ. Luke's gospel puts it this way. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44 through 47, and this, is, this comes right after Jesus' resurrection, and he's talking to his disciples. It says this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's all of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Oh, church, do you see how blessed these Christians in Asia Minor was, even though they were suffering? These Christians in Asia Minor were blessed because they, ex they actually experienced this salvation. Unlike the Old Testament prophets who only saw it from afar, and the angels only gazed upon it, according to verse 12. We too are blessed because we are living in the day when God's plan of salvation is being fulfilled. Peter wants us to cherish this great salvation that we have been recipients of and that we are currently participating in. How great a salvation is this? How great a privilege it is to be alive this side of the resurrection. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 13. He says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. 
For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Church, may we not take for granted the privilege we have of hearing the gospel proclaimed every Sunday from this pulpit. The gospel message that Old Testament prophets and saints didn't get a chance to see fulfilled in their day. We see it with our eyes as we see people coming to Christ, as we see people being converted, as we share the good news of Christ with people, with our neighbors, with our families. We see God's plan of redemption being fulfilled. And if you notice, up to this point, Peter has been focusing on the future aspect of salvation, salvation that still awaits us. Now, yes, it is true that when a Christian puts their faith in Jesus Christ, at that very moment, they are declared right with God. They are justified. Look, if you're a Christian, you are no more justified today than you were when you first believed. Right? So that's justification. But it is also true that God is still saving us in this present day. Paul testifies to this, to, to the present aspect of salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, when he says this, Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's present tense. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, presently, God is at work within us, and he's making us more and more like Christ. Day by day, we die to sin and rise unto newness of life. But there's also a future aspect of salvation, which will be fully experienced when Christ comes back. Look at the last part of verse 13 of our text. Peter gives this one command for us. It's in an imperative. It is our response to what God has done for us in salvation. You see, before we're called to duty, before we're called to Christian duty, we're always told of what God has done for us. Because what God has done for us is the motivation for us to respond to that. Right? It's the motivation for us to, to live our lives to, to glorify God. Our duty always comes in light of what God has already done, right? So in verses 3 through 12, that's what we've been talking about, what God has done. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's given us an inheritance. And in the light of that, we see verse 13, right? And Peter says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, according to Peter, we are still awaiting grace. Or in other words, we are still awaiting salvation. This grace will be given to us when Christ returns. I remember when me and my wife, we were planning to get married. We made our plans in light of our future wedding. We were planning out the wedding day, right? The ceremony, uh, the reception, honeymoon. Now, as we were getting closer and closer, the expectation of that day grew stronger and stronger. Right? I couldn't wait to see my beautiful bride. And 12 years later, like, she's still gorgeous. Still, still beautiful, right? I love her so much. 
But this is my point. So it is with Christians today. We live with the expectation of seeing Jesus, our living hope. So the question remains, in a broken and fallen world, how do we set our hope fully on the grace that will be ours in the future? How do we keep our eyes looking forward and fixed on eternity? Well, I see two ways in verse 13. First way is this. We're called to prepare our minds for action. Prepare our minds for action. Verse 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Some translations state, gird up the loins of your mind. Right? To gird up your loins was the ancient practice of, of a person tucking in their garments or a long robe uh, when they were about to run or do some serious work. So today, you know, you might roll up your sleeves and, and, and get ready to work. Or, you know, some of you might get ready to fight. I, I don't know. But you see, Peter, he, he applies this here to our thought process. Right? Peter is calling us to have a disciplined mind. You see, this future hope of seeing Christ won't become a reality if your mind is not prepared today. If your mind is not disciplined in this life, that future hope of seeing Christ won't be a reality for you. I recall the story about a gifted young man who said that this man had a great mind, but he produced so little. This man left college. He joined the army, but he left the army because he didn't want uh, to do the duties that were required of him. So he went back to college, and he never finished school. It was said that this man was very gifted poetically, that he was just walking around with over hundreds of ideas of poems and books just in his mind. But sadly, those ideas never made it to print. They were never published. Pen was never put to paper. You see, he wasn't disciplined enough to ever see things through. He failed to concentrate and put forth the effort needed to finish his work. Brothers and sisters, I fear that some of us in this room will be just like this young man. Some of us are not disciplined in our minds. Our minds are so filled with the things of this world that we have taken our eyes off Christ, our only hope. How often do you think of Christ's return? How often do you think of the kingdom of God that is coming? When was the last time you meditated on the grace that is awaiting you in the future? The things of this world that take up your mind will hinder your progress. It will prevent you from living a fruitful life now. As one theologian puts it, he says, a Christian who is looking for the glory of God has a greater motivation for present obedience than a Christian who ignores the Lord's return. Oh, church, may we be constantly filling our minds with the truths of Scripture so that our minds are fixed on our future hope. Two ways that I think we can help prepare our minds for action. One is this. One, by reading God's Word, spending time in the Word of God. Right? If we're going to have a mind prepared for action, it is imperative that we spend time in the Word. We have to be a people whose minds are renewed by the Word of God daily. As our minds are being renewed by the word of God, we, we will not conform to this world. 
Spending time in the Word gives us the proper uh, worldview in this life, and that is the Christian worldview. You see, as we read God's Word, we are reminded that we are elect exiles, pilgrims, desiring a better homeland. God's Word tells us that we are citizens of heaven. We set our minds on the things above, not on the things below, on this earth. God has given us so many different means of grace to help us prepare our minds for action. Think about the benefits of daily devotionals, right? One-on-one discipleship, small groups where the Bible is discussed, or reading a good Christian book with somebody and discussing it, sitting under the preached word, attending a Wednesday night Bible study. These are means of grace given to us, brothers and sisters, to ready our minds for action. We must be like the blessed man described in Psalm 1, who it says, who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates day and night on God's word. Oh, church, may we be constantly filling our minds with the truths of Scripture. Second way I see that we can prepare our minds for action is by actually coming to church. It is imperative that we come to church. Now, we don't look at church attendance here at the garden in a legalistic way. You're not condemned to hell if you miss a Sunday or if you, even if you miss several Sundays. But I will say this. The Bible does mention it is a sin to forsake the assembly. See Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. If you are able to come to church and you choose not to, it is sinful. Gathering on the Lord's day consistently with, the, with God's people is beneficial because it helps us reorient our mind to what is most important. We get a chance to recalibrate our minds to worship God and fix our eyes on Christ, our living hope. Every time we assemble together on the Lord's day, we get a glimpse of heaven. Our future hope is put on display when we come together on Sundays. When we come together to sing songs, to read the word, to hear the word preached, to pray, to take communion, we get a small glimpse of that great and final day. We get a glimpse of eternity. Now, how can the one who neglects to worship with God's people in this life expect to worship with God's people in the life to come? Think about that. Peter also calls us to be sober-minded, right? So if we're going to set our hope fully on the grace that is going to be ours in the future, one, we prepare our mind for action, but two, and this is my last point, two, he wants us to be sober-minded. Look at the second part of verse 13. It states, and being sober-minded. To be sober-minded has the idea of self-control attached to it. Peter's not simply talking about in the area of drunkenness. But let me just say this. It's hard to be sober-minded if you're intoxicated or under the influence of alcohol, of weed, of crack, heroin, cocaine, or if you're under the influence of pride, lust, power, greed, social media, television. It's hard to be sober-minded. You see, Peter wants us to have a clear mind. He wants us to be steadfast and alert. You see, the human mind is not just limited to our intellectual life, but it is also what determines our conduct. 
It's sad when Christians are so attracted to this world that they forget about the world to come. It's sad to see Christians live for this world only. This is what was said of Demas. Demas was a former associate of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul says this about him. He says, he was in love with this present world and has deserted me. Well, I'm afraid some of us are currently in love with this present world and have deserted Christ. Some have abandoned their future hope, brothers and sisters, just for, the, just for trying to have our best life now. To be held captivated by this world is to be in a state of spiritual drunkenness. The one who is not sober-minded will become spiritually lethargic to the things of God. And this kind of person, says one theologian, will only be concerned with fulfilling their earthly desires. My dear friends, what are you currently living for? Is your mind occupied with the things of this world? Sex, money, power, greed, fame, pleasure, comfort, worldly wisdom, worldly pursuits, self. Church, may we never become dull to our future glories. Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Family, we are only called to suffer a little while, just a little while longer. And what we suffer in this life never compares to the grace that awaits us. May we always be looking forward to that day. As the song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look forward in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May we always be a people looking forward to that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the living hope that you have caused us to be born again to the inheritance that we have laid up for us. And we praise you, Lord, that we're being guarded by your great power. For we often find ourselves without strength. But, Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can have assurance. Lord, we know that you are faithful even when we're not. So I pray, God, that you would help us be a people of today living in light of the great salvation that you have accomplished for us. And I pray, Father, that even now that you will prepare our minds for action that you would help us to be sober-minded, that we might set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.